With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to a very special week on the FCPA Compliance Report. On Monday, August 31st, will be my 500th episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. This week, I've asked five of the top compliance commentators around to share with me some of their reflections on what has changed from their perspective over the past 10 years or so in compliance. We begin with Mike Volkoff on changes in FCPA enforcement. Matt Kelly visits with us about changes that he has seen from his business journalist hat perspective. Jonathan Armstrong talks about changes in data protection and data privacy. Jay Rosen talks about changes from his unique business development perspective. And finally, Jonathan Marks talks to us about the changes he sees in compliance mirroring those he saw in internal audit after the passage of Sarbanes-Oxley. On my 500th episode, I'll talk about some of the changes that I've seen and also some of the highlights from podcasting over the past eight years or so. This is a very special week. I hope you will enjoy it as much as I've enjoyed producing it and bringing it to you. Thanks for being a part of the FCPA Compliance Report and I hope you will stay with me on the journey to episode 1000. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back with my lead up to the 500th anniversary show of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, I have with me my good friend, Jonathan Armstrong. Jonathan, thank you so much for being a part of this lead up to my 500th show. Well, thanks very much, Tom. And uh, and on behalf of the Queen and the British people, I congratulate you on such a milestone. Well, it doesn't get much better than that. Uh, Jonathan, we both have been practicing for quite some time, but what I wanted to visit with you about today was some of the uh, changes that you have seen literally in the past six, seven, eight years uh, up to where we are now and where we might go in the future. So uh, with that, I know you practice in uh, data privacy, but you've also dabbled in anti-corruption. And uh, I think because of the focus of the UK law, we have the UK modern slavery law. So uh, why don't you let us know? Yeah, I think even even 10 years ago seems to be somewhat of a different world to me. Of course, in August 2010, Barack Obama was the US president, David Cameron, the UK prime minister. And then without being very political, then it all started to go horribly wrong. So I think many of us uh, yearn for at least elements of those days. And I think as well as us changing quite a bit politically, then the compliance world has changed as well. So if we start and look at data privacy, data protection, of course, there were laws across the EU on data protection in 10 years or so ago. And in fact, there were older laws in some countries like Portugal, where their laws go back to the 1970s. 
but GDPR wasn't in force uh, 10 years ago, nor were things like the new criminal offences, which came into existence in UK law just in 2018. Of course, in some respects, it was perceived that there wasn't such a big requirement for fines of the type that we've seen under GDPR. It was a slightly different world, wasn't it, in that there were less tech monopolies. In the last 10 years, we've had this accelerated uh, world where organizations like Uber, for example, can go from startup to new market entrant to quasi-monopoly in whatever, 28, 36 months. You know, if you look at how long it took some, I don't know, AT&T or GE, or if you look at the railroads back in the US and the Carnegie's and the Vanderbilt's, if you look at how long it took them to reach monopoly positions, then the world is a very different place that somebody can go, as I said, from startup to monopolist in under three years. So in some respects, GDPR is a creation of this new environment. It starts off as a way of trying to hit these predominantly US-based uh, monopolistic providers, where the commission has to some extent, the European commission has to some extent failed to discipline them through antitrust law. So a mixture of, of uh, GDPR is a mixture of, of privacy law and a, a, and a mixture of, of this perceived need uh, to level out the market. Uh, and, and of course, things like uh, political interference in elections probably wasn't a thing 10 years ago, or at least if it was a thing, it was subtler than it is now. Uh, my own view is that there has been political interference in elections before, but it's been more overt. It's been the likes of the Murdoch organization using their TV assets and their media assets to control how people think in their and their minds, rather than to do it surreptitiously and more covertly through Facebook. So in some respects, I think, uh, you know, that if we were to look back 10 years and we were to say, is GDPR necessary? 10 years ago, we might not have said it was. But if we look back with the benefit of hindsight and say, do we need GDPR? Then, then, then we do. But it's also interesting to see how public opinions changed and how individuals have had more input into the new regime and in, more input into, into privacy. So, for example, in 2011, Max Schrems was still a student at Santa Clara University. And it's amazing, isn't it, to see how somebody who was, you know, that fateful um, event when the Facebook attorney came and guest tutored at the, uh, at, the, at the class in 2010, that event still hadn't happened. And so we've had since then this whole journey of privacy activism with people like Max Schrems making the subject access request against Facebook, complaining to the Irish regulator, it reaching the ECJ, whole governments getting together to respond to that case. You know, the mass of the 
US administration and the European Commission flying over the Atlantic to meet with each other to put in place privacy shield in response to the criticisms of South Harbour. And then now getting ready to do the whole thing again because Schrems has uh, and his team have have effectively knocked out the the, the privacy privacy shield scheme and 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 Schrems's walk now isn't a a lone walk if it ever was because we've got other privacy activists like La Quadrature Dinet like Digital Rights Island and in some respects everybody is now a privacy activist employees who are furloughed uh, in the current pandemic, are using data protection rights to work out whether they should be furloughed or a co-worker. Individuals who are left let go after furlough are using their data pri- privacy rights. So, um, so I suppose in some respects, to, to use an Italian term, because we're all Europeans, there's been a, a very much a, a volte face with with privacy rights, where we've changed from privacy rights being something people don't care so much about and are enforced by the state to privacy rights that people generally do care about and they're using to obtain uh, help themselves uh, themselves and in some respects that's the bigger consequence of course we've had other consequences like the rise in fines you know 10 years ago the maximum fine in the uk was uh, 500,000 pounds now it's 20 million euros so 17 million, uh, 20 million euros, so roughly 17 million sterling versus 500,000. And of course, for bigger organizations, it's it's 4% of global annual revenue. So we've seen a huge rise in fine, but I think the effect even more so now is this activism thing. Organizations are having to deal with privacy requests, privacy complaints on a daily basis, whereas previously it was twice or three times a year. So I think there's been a real change in the world of privacy. In bribery, I think we've perhaps had less change. I mean, obviously, the legislation in the UK was updated in 2010. That didn't come into force in in 2011. In some respects, we had a reluctant uh, adoption of the Bribery Act in some respects. It was obviously uh, steered through by the Labour government. As I said, the Cameron administration was just new in 2010 and they inherited this legislation. And some, like the then Lord Chancellor, I think were perhaps not as aggressive in the campaign against uh, bribery as people had been in the in the prior administration. But what the Bribery Act has done to an extent and what the increased enforcement by the SFO has done to an extent is to have another sheriff in town. And that might be a sort of lower grade deputy to the US, but at least we've had more enforcement. The last time I looked at the tables, UK was still second in terms of bribery enforcement, admittedly with clear water behind the US. But we have seen other countries also uh, look at the evils of bribery and try and follow the US's lead. So Sweden, 
France with Sapander, Germany with its draft new laws, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. One of the other interesting things in in my mind, and I tried to get the stats on this, and you might know it better than I do, the uh, FCPA settlements as at 2010. My recollection is that they were predominantly non-US corporations. And I guess to be in the, you know, and I'd be guessing the top 10 settlements in 2010 are probably the 40, 50 level if you look at global uh, enforcement tables now. But, But one trend that we've seen, I think, is this tag teaming of regulators. You know, if you look at something like Airbus, We've got a joint settlement with uh, um, uh, Brazil, uh, sorry, with France, uh, with the uh, UK and with the US. And I think we couldn't really contemplate that level of cooperation in 2010, as I said, partly because the US was the, the only sheriff in town. And I guess what changed is this, is this um, the US administration particularly had this um ability to pull off almost surrender not victory to tell um global corporations that they were going to win and so they ought to get in and settle with government and that strategy became the envy of many other countries as well so uh as as, as i said the bribery act came in, in into force in 2011 in the uk and then we had uh, um, deferred prosecution agreements somewhat as an add-on, but that uh, th- that happened a bit later. But that's given the UK authorities the ability to do deals and to do b- deals on a cross-border basis, and that didn't uh, really exist before. So that's brought us these, you know, huge settlements in cases like Rolls-Royce and, and Airbus. Um, so I, I think the world of bribery, we have seen change. And I think that's also been, in some respects, a societal change as well. You know, if you look at France, with its uh, hatred almost of the way in which the US policed bribery, you know, their uh, blocking statutes, their uh, um hatred of the way in which US authorities tried to reach onto French soil to stop bri- uh, to stop the uh, to stop stopping bribery happening if if you're following me we've gone uh, again through uh, a a a renversé there a, a, a change of attitude with the French where Sapander not only says that you have to take appropriate measures to stop bribery, but it also encourages things like whistleblowing lines that 10 years ago they had rejected in the enforcement activity against McDonald's and Exide, for example, where they'd said whistleblowing lines have no place in French culture. So we have affected, I think, a cultural change in those 10 years of saying that sometimes the fight against corruption, uh, uh, you know, the fight against wrongdoing is bigger than the reservations that we have about uh, 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 anonymous whistleblowing, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then I think the other area where we've affected cultural change is slavery. And I think slavery is a really uncomfortable 
thing to talk about. You know, uh, the the British believe that they had stamped out slavery in the 1800s, whether that's right or not. And we've put statues up to the likes of William Wilberforce, who did do great work in trying to stop the evils of slavery. But when we're frank with ourselves, they didn't do the job. They didn't finish the job. And they stamped out overt slavery, or at least they stopped it amongst British assets, or at least they hid it. But they didn't get hearts and minds of everyone. So we still have slaves, you know, probably two or three miles away from where I'm sitting here now. And they're not working plantations. They're working car washers. They're working nail bars. They've got those little fish that are going to bite skin off my feet if I ask them to. But they're here, hidden in plain sight. And one of the things in the last 10 years or so that we've had, I think, is the UK realizing that the fight against slavery was a job half done. And one of the, you know, I am critical of our uh, government, uh, critical of the current administration, critical of the last, but hats off to them. One of the things they have done is grasp the nettle. One of the things that our current government has said, just as in the 1800s, we had to affect global change by taking a stance against slavery, then so it is behoven to us to try again and to try and finish the job. So in 2015, the UK brought in the modern slavery legislation, which has been mold breaking. It has already affected change. You know, I speak to a contact of mine that's a magistrate. They are seeing cases come through the courts. Six miles away from me, we have had a joint raid on a car wash operation, a somewhat odd raid. You know, they relied on the fire brigade to break the doors down and to release people. But we set these people free and we released them from bondage. And we did that in part because we had powers under this new 2015 legislation to do it. So people who say this is paperwork and box ticking, it is. There are elements of that. There are elements of the law that could be improved. It isn't a perfect piece of legislation, but it has changed hearts and minds and it has alerted people to the fact that we did not do the job in the 1800s and there's still work to be done. And then and then I guess my last thing that I'd say is I think we've seen a change in the role of the compliance profession over the last 10 years as well. And I think it wasn't really a profession as such 10 years ago. And in the minds of many executives, it was a bit like the elephant's graveyard. It was where uh, executives in the business went to retire. It's where they went to see the last two or three years out before their pension kicked in. And that's definitely changed. I think we've seen the rise of compliance professionals, the rise in respect of compliance professionals, and the recognition that they need to have the skills and the resources to do the job. And partly, things like the changes in bribery with its uh, 
uh, underlying of the need for adequate uh, resources and adequate uh, provisions to be in place to stamp out bribery has has helped with that job. Partly GDPR has as well with the recognition of the data protection officer as an independent position, but partly the profession itself has done that work as well and shouted for the fact that it needs to be seen to be independent and it needs to be seen to be uh, you know, a voice of ethical behavior and a voice of good uh, embedded in corporations and organizations. So I hope that hasn't been too discursive for you, but that's my quick take on, I think, 10 years of progress, but 10 years that still show that there's work to be done. Well, Jonathan, thank you uh, so much for taking the time to visit with me. It was a great podcast, but more importantly, you've been a good friend over the years, and it's been a great ride uh, for us working together. So thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. Thanks for inviting me. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode as I march towards my 500th anniversary show of the FCPA Compliance Report on Monday, August 31st. Tomorrow, Jay Rosen is going to visit with us about the changes in compliance he has seen as a business development specialist over the past eight to 10 years. It's a fascinating look from someone who deals really outside of the compliance profession, but deals with compliance professionals all the time. So I'm going to be very interested to see what Jay's reflections might be. I hope you will also join me the rest of this week as I continue to move towards my 500th show. I hope you will please plan to listen in to the 500th show, which will post on Monday, August 31st. This special series has been a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. FCPA Compliance Report is also a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.